Thank you so much, Dr. Ayler, for hosting us. Thank you to everyone for coming today. I think this is a historical first live webcast of the ID podcast. Thanks to Dr. Ayler's acumen and expertise. Welcome, everyone. Um, wanted to go through some exciting topics today about hepatitis C, designed to give you a quick overview um, and a ramp up, if you will, so you will be confident in treating and screening for hepatitis C after this lecture. Um, I am Jamie Marana. For those of you who don't know me, um, I am one of the ID faculty here at USF College of uh, Medicine, um, and I work primarily with uh, viruses, HIV, hepatitis C and work primarily in the clinical video telehealth realm. So getting veterans care to rural areas, uh, folks who can't come into the Tampa location. Um, and we work with uh, the Connected uh, Care Program nationally as well. So, um, and for those of you who know me, the health department, we also do hepatitis C and HIV at the, the health department uh, for Hillsborough County. Um, so starting off, we have a global hepatitis C prevalence. Um, and something that quickly comes to mind is the United States certainly has a high prevalence of about 1 to 1.9%, but we certainly have um, a high prevalence here. Um, and that's for multiple reasons. Um, if anybody wants to hazard a guess, um, it's actually a lot of, unfortunately, um, IV drug use in this region, um, and also a lot of social factors that prevent uh, screening and treatment and um, this, the stopping of transmission in these regions. Um, so that's primarily the reason the United States has needle exchange programs, um, treatment, suboxone, methadone replacement programs. Some areas of the world are not so fortunate, so that's why we see those increases. Um, also, something to keep in mind with hepatitis C, um, like any virus, it moves in social networks. Um, so the United States, you can see, is primarily genotype 1A, 1B, um, some genotype 2, rare 3. Um, but many parts of the world, um, you'll see in these regions here in, in Southeast Asia, et cetera, um, there's actually genotypes 9, uh, 7, 8, and 9. And if you do a, a macro view, you'll actually see um, melding of genotypes within um, transit areas or highway areas where people are interacting with each other. So it's, it's very much um, it's kind of like, who do you know and, and uh, who are, with whom are you interacting for hepatitis C genotype acquisition? Um, in the United States, in your practice, you'll be noticing that you'll be focusing mostly on genotype 1 uh, and 2, but in other parts of the world, if you do international outreach, um, the genotypes will, will likely differ for you, and that, of course, affects treatment. Um, you'll see also in Egypt, there's a predominance of genotype 4. Um, that was um, a fortunate uh, nosocomial transmission um, through some vaccination campaigns, um, but otherwise, um, most of this is intravenous drug use mediated and some atrogenic uh, transfusion related. Um, so hepatitis C epidemiology in the United States, um, I think it's important to remember that it's about 3.9 million persons, but these are folks who were able to be reached by survey. So it's actually probably closer to about 4.2, 4.3 million for those individuals incarcerated or unable to be reached by the traditional telephone survey. Um, we have a national prevalence of 1.13%. It sounds small, but when you get into it, it's actually pretty large in terms of um, the, I would say, disproportionate morbidity and mortality that the um, disease will cause. For those of you in, in practice, of course, you see hepatosaurocarcinoma and you see um, high rates of hepatitis C on transplant lists. Um, something also, Florida, um, unfortunately, does have high rates. Um, 
A lot of the uh, incidents, though, you'll see is also in the western part of the United States. I think we have a pointer, but there we go. Um, so this is by state. This is a very elegant study by Rosenberg et al. And you can see it's broken down by state using uh, the survey US Census and NH data. And what the kind of take home message is, is that they've done a very good job in breaking it down to hepatitis C, hepatitis C and cirrhosis, and actually hepatitis C and a pallor carcinoma. Um, so you'll see um, large prevalence rates. You'll see Florida's about in the middle here um, in terms of um, prevalence um, upwards in this. And interestingly, I thought um, Oklahoma with a very large rate um, and um, that's how uh, it's very, it busts you. Um, that was very interesting to me, but you'll see kind of it, it broken down very nicely for you. Um, Florida particularly has 153 individuals. Again, the number sounds small, but in practice, it's, it's actually very large in terms of disproportionate uh, effort and, and trying to get these folks um, cured and, and back into care. Um, we have an incidence rate of 170, and we actually have about 1,000 deaths in 2016. So it, it's certainly a chronic disease, but certainly can be fatal. Um, going to the basic signs of hepatitis C, this will really help um, you understand how to treat hepatitis C. You have to think of hepatitis C as kind of a linear virus. Um, you have some envelope proteins, but the kind of the work end of the virus is your non-structural proteins. Um, and they were very kind and they labeled them very logically for us. So we have non-structural protein two, three, four, and five. So when you hear in the discourse uh, structural protein NS3A, 5B, that's what's going on here. They're basically ends of the very linear protein. And you might have asked yourself, hey, simple virus, why can't we get a vaccine? Well, it's actually very complicated to get a vaccine. A lot of folks have tried. We have vaccines to A and B, but um, it's very challenging on hep C. So it looks simple, but it, it, in practice we can cure it, but it's very hard to get a vaccine. And that's the work end there. Um, so many of you are familiar, um, hepatitis C, the reason why we are really um, energized to screen, treat, and prevent it is because it can progress to hepatitis carcinoma. Um, as you know, about 25% um, of folks will clear hepatitis C spontaneously, but the other 75% usually have a pretty predictable progression over time um, to cirrhosis and hepatitis carcinoma, especially if folks um, are also using alcohol heavily or have other comorbidities such as HIV or immunosuppression, you'll see that progress. Um, so obviously that's what we're trying to avoid um, with our treatment plans. Um, this is a very elegant piece by Beperional. Uh, She's uh, very well known. Um, this is the, the kind of steering group within VA. I wanted to show this to everyone because the VA actually was the single most uh, largest treater of hepatitis C. Um, I've seen in the world, I can certainly imagine in the United States, um, in terms of an organized institution, there's Kaiser Permanente, there's a lot of HMOs, but in terms of, um, as you can imagine, the veteran prevalence of hepatitis C is larger than the civilian population for various reasons. And um, this is, a, I think, a very nice piece in terms of how one can organize uh, institutions uh, to treat hepatitis C. Um, this is the closest thing to a national health service that we have in the United States. Um, so you'll see we have about 168 individuals. Again, number sounds small, but you can imagine, and many of you have been part of it, the, the effort to kind of seek and treat um, these individuals really, really took, took an army of, <laughs> of providers. Um, so we have 168,000 
And um, we actually have uh, gotten that number down to 50,000. Um, and it was a very concerted effort of about, uh, for about two years of, of time, two and a half, three years of time. Um, I wanted to, to point out that that was actually very impressive within that short amount of time. Um, these are the demographics of the veterans whom we treated. I wanted just to show you um, a lot of them, interestingly, have been treated before with um, inter interferon and ribavirin. You probably are familiar with that. It's a, it's a very rough regimen. It only had about 50% efficacy and um, very difficult to tolerate, can cause long-term neuropathy. Um, it was like having the flu for about 48 weeks. Uh, it, was, it was terrible. Um, but we were very fortunate to be ushered into the direct antiviral um, era, directly acting antiviral DAA era, which we'll get to, um, which was much better tolerated and really made this uh, campaign worldwide um, successful. Um, also, I wanted to point out we have a high rate of substance use, not only, especially in the VA, but also with hepatitis C more broadly. Um, and that was very key in terms of stopping that synergistic progression to hepatocellular carcinoma. Um, this is a very nice treatment uh, paradigm. So in terms of a treatment cascade, you've probably seen this with HIV in terms of diagnosis, linkage to care, and suppression. This is similar with hepatitis C. The SVR uh, for the students sustained virologic response. That's basically a demonstrated negative um, no virus, so negative hepatitis C viral load after 12 weeks. Um, we used to do SVR 24s, but we really just do 12 now because of the efficacy of the uh, medications. So you'll see it's a pretty good SVR rate in terms of um, treatment. Um, also, something also wanted to point out in terms of uh, hepatitis C. And, and that folks in ID world, I think we're always thinking about hepatitis C and HIV screening. But for, for general practice, we really want to make sure anybody who's ever injected drugs, that's why we ask that in the social history, even once. So uh, people getting out of bed don't say, hey, I'm going to use that clean needle when I use drugs. Usually people use... Um, a shared needle the first time they're, they're using drugs because of the social network. So even if it's only a one time, you really want to screen for hepatitis C. Um, dialysis, certainly, um, and you probably heard a lot of uh, talk about baby boomer generation. So born from 1945 to 1965, that's true. But we do know now there's a bimodal distribution. Um, unfortunately, our young folks are actually very high risk and, and are getting infected at a disproportionate rate. So we used to think it was a bell curve, but now it's actually bimodal. So we need to really think out of the box in terms of who we're, whom we're screening. And especially folks who have been incarcerated, um, it is very important as well. Um, so in terms of other things, um, folks who work with me know uh, if they have HIV infection, that's an automatic screen uh, with diagnosis. And also we screen for um, PrEP when we're uh, working with HIV prevention. Um, Siled organs certainly as well. Um, so I wanted to go over the treatment guidelines. Y'all are probably familiar with the um, ISDA guidelines and the AASLD guidelines, which are, are the same. Um, this one is very helpful, I think, when you're working within VA because you'll probably be referred to this in your practice. Thankfully, they are very uh, concordant with um, our current recommendations, but I wanted to share this with you because I think the way they present it is very clear. Um, so essentially, whom are we treating, right? basically all comers. We're very fortunate within VA to be able to really offer treatment to all of our veterans thanks to a lot of advocacy and hard work by a lot of people in the, the policy and provider world. Um, so basically what we're doing here 
is we're looking at people who have hep C, active viral loads certainly, but also keeping in mind that um, we really do want to try to treat um, along with or sometimes even through um, alcohol use. Um, illicit drug use, we like folks to be out of that risk period, um, mainly because of the, right, the concern for reinfection. Um, but in terms of uh, really stopping that transmission uh, progression to hepatosar carcinoma, we really want to keep an open mind. Um, some VAs are, are more open-minded than others. For example, um, Orlando VA will treat through um, a lot of uh, co-substance use. We certainly do our best here to get folks on Suboxone therapy and to mental health. Um, we have them screened. Um, marijuana, really, even though it's not quite federal law uh, at all yet, it's state law, um, but we really try to work with the, the veteran to, to get as much treatment that we can do. What you're really worried about is reinfection rates, um, not making kind of an ethical consideration. Now, in the private sector, um, usually they do require um, negative uh, demonstrations for negative urine tests, but, um, but here we're really trying to be open-minded uh, in terms of treatment because our goal is to decrease the community hepatitis E viral load and, and prevent transmission and progression to diseases um, and getting them working with our mental health colleagues to, to stop that transmission. So essentially, um, what you need to do for hepatitis C um, you really want to know what their liver is doing, right? You want to know how their liver is functioning, what's going on, what other comorbidities might affect their treatment regimen. Um, and you also want to make sure, okay, are they going to be able to stick with our program for eight weeks or, or 12 weeks, sometimes even 24 weeks if they have um, cirrhosis. So that's why that's important. Um, so pretreatment, um, these are really important. They all have their place. Um, I'd like to think not of the, the laundry list of things we have to check off, but they actually have a reason, right? So genotype we really need to know, right? Because certain drugs are more active with some genotypes than others, right? You just don't want to treat because if it doesn't work, then you're, you're out of luck. You don't know what you had to begin with. Um, you want to know viral load. Um, anything above 6 million is really, really high. We typically see around 2 million. But remember, unlike HIV, the viral load in the serum does not necessarily correlate to degrees to disease progression or activity. So the, the virus could be very, very active in the liver, but the serum viral load still might be just a million or so. Um, so that's why it's important to certainly know what you're starting with, but know that people can have severe symptoms even if their viral load serologically is, is low normal or low on the low side, I should say. Um, also, you want to really know what the liver is doing. Um, for folks who treat hep C, it's really helpful to kind of work with hepatology colleagues with any questions and, and do hepatology modules because you want to know the synthetic function of the liver. Um, you want to know, um, is there inflammation going on? If it's an acute infection, you want to kind of look at that trajectory to see where you are on that curve. Um, you want to look at platelets. Anything below 50,000 certainly would be severe deficiency in synthetic function. Um, you want to look at renal function, right? Because some meds we can use with hemodialysis, sometimes we can't. Um, and then cirrhosis, now that is really a game changer. So when you look at someone, um, and there's a lot of folks who are kind of on the fence, are they cirrhotic, are they not cirrhotic? Are they decompensated, are they, are they compensated? That actually makes a big difference in terms of medications chosen and also their progression and also their monitoring after treatment. Um, and then of course we always check for other concomitant viruses. Um, and thankfully, we don't use ribavirin anymore, um, but if you're working in an international setting, you might, you might run into that. And ribavirin is teratogenic, so you really need to stress um, birth control. 
Um, this is a nice um, slide uh, put um, together by Pam Belperio. Um, I thought it was very elegant in terms of showing you the linear progression of, of the hepatitis C genome and kind of showing you what drugs are active. And the ability for us to come up with these directly acting antivirals, DAAs, um, came from actually that HIV era where drugs were actually designed to go after parts of the genome, right? Because the hepatitis C meds before were very um, pan-active, right? They were all over the, the map in terms of the antiviral activity. These are specifically targeted to, for example, the N3 protease inhibitor part or the NS5A or NS5B. Um, something to re remember, the Bs have a B in them, so it's a fosbuvir, um, and then the A have an A in them, so declatosphere, velpasvir, so that might help you kind of remember where things are. Um, the protease inhibitors are an evir, so evir, glucoprovir, grazeprovir, and those are the brand names just so you're aware on the side. Um, I'm kind of a um, very, I guess, a visual person as well, so I like this. Y'all have seen this in my HIV teaching, but I wanted to show you. So, Cephosivir and Ladithosphere, actually, because you've heard Boney, right? That's probably the one we're most familiar with. Um, Valpatosphere um, and Cephosphere will give you Obclusa. Now, if you add um, Boxalaprovir, you actually get Facevi. So Vasevi we use in our second line treatments when someone has not done well with Harvoni. If they don't have any resistance, um, usually we'll try Vasevi or Mevrat, but Vasevi is our next line. The Cladosphere is, is used um, kind of by itself with, with other medications. You can use that with Sofosavir and others, but it's not in a combination pill. Now, Grazapavir and Albasavir are, are our newcomers, and together they're, um, they're Zepavir, which you'll see for genotype 1A. Um, and then Glucopravir and Pertentosphere um, is Maverick, which is very exciting because it's an eight-week therapy for your non-serotics. It is three pills once a day, but it's very effective and very low profile in terms of side effects. Um, so Mepavir, these are the older ones. Um, you probably heard of Tacnavi or Vicarapac. Those were very uh, difficult to use. They caused some decompensations. They're kind of out of favor now. Um, we really use the ones on the top of the slide, but it's good to know historically what we do. Um, so in terms of you know what to use, usually that's the the more simple part because the guidelines are so good within IDSA and the VA, which are, are concomitant, that you really just have to know if they're treatment naive or if they're treatment experienced. If they're treatment experienced, have they used a direct uh, acting antiviral DAA before, or they have just used PEG and RIBA. And then you also need to know if they're serotic and non-serotic. Now you have a couple ways to do that, right? So APRI, FIB4 scoring, liver ultrasound. Um, I'm not a big fan of liver elastography because I feel like it's low sensitivity for looking for tumor burden. It certainly is helpful, but kind of like to get the whole picture of the liver. Um, and it's a lot easier to get ultrasounds um, than elastography. So I feel like the treatment is, is a lot easier to implement if, if we do ultrasounds. But in any case, they're both tools to see if an uh, individual is serotic or not serotic. Um, child stricker Pew score, right? Remember from your GI rotation days? Um, we want to know really if they're A or, or B. It really makes a difference. Um, and that's a good exam. That's labs. That's um, liver ultrasound. It's actually you know getting good history. Have you had swelling? Have you had GI bleeding? Um, have you had ascites? That ultrasound is also nice because you can look for ascites on the ultrasound.
And sometimes people are, are on the border in terms of, um, you know, are they cirrhotic or, or decompensated or compensated? And it matters. It does matter with your treatment. Um, all the clinical trials were designed um, in those categories. So that's why it matters that, that you, you kind of understand how to put the person in the correct category. Um, most of these are 12 weeks. You'll see some 24 weeks. Um, for your 24-week uh, folks, you really want to make sure that they're able to commit and, and complete. Um, so this is interesting. So um, I wanted to talk a little bit about resistance in Hep C world. We call it RAS testing, resistance um, testing. And um, basically what we're worried about is um, if someone has failed a regimen, such as a harmony levodifacir cephosphere regimen, um, are there mutations that are causing problems? And the quick answer is we really don't test for mutations like we do in the HIV world unless they're actually going to be considered for a specific drug. And these have been worked out meticulously in clinical trials. So there, there's, there's true evidence to, to back this up. But essentially, you're thinking about really in, within VA in the practice world, you're only doing NS5A testing. That was the only one that really became clinically relevant. And it's only if they've, if they've failed a regimen and they're genotype 1A um, or if they're genotype 3. Um, and if you're thinking about those regimens. But generally speaking, we really don't get resistance testing unless someone's really failed a DA regimen and you're considering um, a second line regimen for that treatment. Um, the only time it's first time if you're doing um, a Zepatir, um, like an Elbasphir or Zopavir for genotype 1A, and then we get resistance testing before we treat. Otherwise, it's usually um, after the fact. Um, or if it's genotype 3, you'll see there. So. Basically, if they're treatment naive, it's 1A and 3, and that's it if you're only considering those. And then if they have failed therapy and you're thinking about that as a second line, you get that as well. And that's in the guidelines as well. So laboratory monitoring, how do we monitor? So for our co-infected HIV have C folks, um, we really kind of want to watch them a little more closely. Um, our mono-infected, you could probably do week 4, 8, and 12. Um, Something that you really want to make sure though, week four is really the make or break time. Um, so you really want to make sure your patient's going to be in town, they can come for those labs, um, because you really want that undetectable at week four, right? That's kind of uh, very, it's actually very important to make sure that you're not having resistance and that you're having adherence to the medication. Um, in the, within VA, some people can do week four and week 12. I, in our practice, we like to do week four, week eight, week 12, and an SVR 12. We actually write those labs um, all at the beginning when they come see us. So the first visit at week zero, we actually write them all out. Um, we give them all their schedules and we program all their labs. Um, and that really helps in terms of keeping people on track. And then we call it kind of a one-stop visit. They come in for their labs, their medication refills, um, and their checkup um, all at those time. We do the health department, and we do that with our, our telemedicine program, which really works well in terms of getting people to, to stay on therapy. Um, and so essentially, um, that's really it for lab monitoring. With your folks on antiretrovirals, you're obviously going to pre-check your drug-driving interactions, um, and then you should be good to go. Um, within VA, we also have the added support of a really amazing ID pharmacy team who will actually, you know, help you look at drug-drug interactions and, and help you select the right agent. Um, and that's it. So thankfully, we don't have to discontinue treatment a lot. We used to. Um, and the drugs are not as effective, um, but thankfully, if someone is taking their medication, usually we have no problem. Um, so that's that's good. 
Um, if someone has been off treatment, then sometimes we have to stop, but usually it's not a, a scientific failure of, um, of therapy. So this is just about resistance testing. Really, we don't get it unless there's a few cases, so that's, that's good. Um, this is, I just wanted to show you this because generally speaking, hepatitis C is straightforward, but if you start having resistance and reinfection, that's when it gets, that's when it gets a little bit complex. But I just wanted to show you that, that the VA has a very nice algorithm and same with IDSA guidelines in terms of where you go um, if you um, are working with treatment experienced uh, patients. And this is very interesting too. Um, similar to the HIV world, you'll see different mutations will impart different, um, how do you say, strengths of resistance in terms of um, 100 fold versus 10,000 fold. So, what we really are worried about in Hep C is the Y93H. That actually does cause uh, treatment failures um, a lot of the time. Um, and these are kind of smaller ones, but depending on what drug you're looking at, um, it's not like HIV where you kind of check for everything and you kind of choose based on that. Hep C, you really kind of go through the algorithm of what you want to treat them with, and then you choose that particular genotype um, based on that area. You're not getting NS4 and 5 and 3 mutations all at once because the, the cost is prohibitive. You're really selecting what you want to know. Um, and those are the, the genotypes there. So this is another way of looking at it um, between your genotypes. And again, these are kind of your, your most important ones, depending on what regimen you're going to be using. Um, so that's the, the quick summary. Um, does anybody have any questions or I can go into more details about um, hep C treatment screening? Yes. Yeah. Yes. So in terms of, just to go over it again, yeah. in terms of liver, assessment right what's changed in the last year yes because i know that here at the va we have some new equipment right yes the elastography correct correct so yes what's changed in the last year for hepatitis um, cirrhosis screening is that we've um, been fortunate to get to liver elastography machine. Um, that's basically, um, how do I say, um, it's harder to get appointments um, because of the, the volume um, and I believe it's also within, um, it's housed really within the GI department which is which is great and it's used for a whole other sort of um, hepatology concerns, uh, autoimmune hepatitis, that kind of thing. Um, but for us, um, I guess the newest thing, it's really the liver elastography. Um, we're still using the APRI and FIB4 scoring, which um, you, you can actually get as an app on your phone through the hepatitis C guidelines. Um, it's out of the University of Washington, and afterwards I can show you all the, the app. It's, it's great. Um, but to answer your question, um, within the last two or three years, we're still using APRI and FIB4. Those are still standard of care. Um, still, liver ultrasound is, is I think, still the, the strongest. And, you know, a good, good exam in terms of, you know, looking at edema and hepatomegaly. Um, I think that's that's very helpful. Um, you can certainly get very fancy with other kinds of imaging and tests, and certainly you want to think about a CT of liver or an MRI if you're worried about a hepatocarcinoma, right? So um, a triple phase CT scan if you're worried about a, a tumor or such. Um, but those diagnostics are are pretty standard in terms of you know being pretty constant for us, um, and especially with MVA, it's been very cost effective and I think effective in terms of getting people um, correctly categorized. Um, so we can treat them. Um, hope that answers the question. Um, but also laboratories, you know, are, are really great because of the, the platelet level is very good. The INR, the PTT, um, the, even the MELD scoring, if we're worried, is, is very helpful. Um, so that's kind of what we're, 
or doing. Um, that actually brings the next question I'll segue. So what do we do after we treat them, right? How do we monitor them, right? And so the guidelines really, if someone is a non-serotic and they've done well on a directly acting antiviral, you can just treat them at the guidelines say as if they've never had hep C. I mean, certainly yearly LFTs are good or if there's a change in status, but they don't need monitoring moving forward. The folks who need monitoring will have hepatitis B co-infection or um, other kinds of um, problems in terms of cirrhosis. And then the liver ultrasound is recommended every six months um, to make sure there's no progression. Um, folks um, have been known to progress to hepatic carcinoma if they've had tumor burden if they're given DAAs, and that's an area under active study, is um, when someone does have a pedicarcinoma, it actually can be more dangerous to treat them with a DAA sometimes. It can accelerate their progression and make their cancer a little bit more difficult to treat for reasons that are, are unclear, but we're still, still working on those causes. So that's why, I, personally, I think the liver ultrasound is great because you can really look for tumor, you can really get a comparison, and then you can um, compare that with other imaging if you're really concerned about tumor versus um, other kinds of benign um, growths on the t on the liver. Any other questions? Yes. Is there like a MEL score cutoff? <laughs> Yes, no, good question, no. Uh, the MELD, is, as you know, is developed mostly for transplant and looking at severity of transplant. Most of these folks, um, we don't even do MELD scoring unless we're really worried about decompensated cirrhosis because most of our folks don't even score high on the MELD. Uh, it's really the child's trochoid pew that we like to use on the APRI and FIB4. When somebody is in the MELD range, um, usually we're working with a hepatologist and we would defer to GI because uh, folks can decompensate very quickly. So if you're, if you're looking at someone and they look decompensated, so they have edema and they have a history of varices, um, those folks can, can actually progress to death because um, the liver has so much uh, virus in it. And so when you use a DAA, it actually kills off part of that um, hepatocyte. So people can actually decompensate and, and, and die if, if, you're, you know, if you're not working with, with the right folks in terms of prevention and getting them on a transplant list. Um, it's better now, but we used to have problems um, within uh, the community setting in terms of folks not doing well on therapy. Um, yeah, so you have to be very careful when someone's decompensated. We try not to do that within telehealth for, for clear reasons because we want to make sure we keep a close eye on them. Um, we work with our GI colleagues for that one. Um, yeah. Uh, let's see, other questions for that. How to manage decompensated cirrhotics, that's a whole art in itself. There are some very, very good modules on the um, AIS um, server. They actually have webinars uh, in terms of co-managing uh, cirrhotics, um, how to use diuretic therapy, um, that kind of thing. Because you will see people coming in with swelling, especially on the, the Zepatir drugs for 24 weeks. And we've had to actually stop therapy because people are decompensating and, and have GI um, kind of help us with the diuretic therapy and, and we manage some of that as well. Um, so that, that's important. But the, the key is to, to you know, obviously get them treated and cured before they get to that, to that stage. Um, any other questions? Yes. Is there any difference in duration or how we question. Um, so the trend, um, my understanding is, yes, it's actually we like to treat before transplant, um, if that's possible. Um, I realize if they're cirrhotic, it's hard, but many centers in Massachusetts are actually treating before transplant. Um, uh, do people treat after? Yes. Um, certainly there's an immunosuppression on board, which makes it a little more complicated. Is it possible? Yes. Um, if the liver has hep C, we used to do um, 
hep C to hep C transplants. Um, that's also something to consider. Um, and the reactivation of hep C also could be a problem. Um, to answer your question, I think it's dependent on the transplant center, but I think we're really trying to treat at least with Mavrit for eight weeks before the transplant occurs and before immunization, um, immunosuppression sets in. Um, absolutely, and that's the beauty of working closely with the transplant team is if the person does decompensate, sometimes we might be able to, to treat through it with support or hemodynamic support and then bridge them to transplant for sure. Yeah. Um, something interesting about hepatitis B co-infection. So interestingly, the liver seems to only want to produce one type of hepatitis at a time. So you'll see um, some vets will come in with very, very high levels of hepatitis B viremia. There are hepatitis, maybe like maybe about 1 million, 2 million or so for hep B. Hepatitis C will be maybe around 200, 300, 500. Um, and we treat their hepatitis B, but we have to be super careful that hepatitis C doesn't rebound. So we'll treat their hep B with usually a tenofovir containing regimen. Um, sometimes they'll both clear, but um, somebody you have to really watch. And the opposite is true. So for the hepatitis C, you want to make sure their core, if it's, if it's positive, you have to make sure that hepatitis B doesn't rebound. We've known in some cases where the hepatitis C is cured, but then that hepatitis B will come back. Um, so just monitoring them. Sometimes we repeat a hepatitis B viral load at week 8 or week 12. Certainly watch their LFTs. Um, sometimes if you want to get fancy on their SVR12, you can check a hepatitis B viral load as well as a hepatitis C viral load just to make sure everything is, is fine. And that's very good practice because um, there are incidences where it does come back. Um, yeah, for hepatitis, for HIV, as you can imagine, they're usually on a hepatitis B suppressive drug, so we don't see that rebound because they're usually already suppressed because um, we know their core status. Um, yeah. Any other thoughts? Yes. No, no. If they end up having two types of hepatitis A, B, and C, yes. Co-treat at that time? Yeah. So yes, and we have a resident expert in fact, Dr. Mercario. But yes, what we like to do is um, really. What's interestingly, in my experience, correct me wrong, Amanda, but I, I see one or the other active, and most of the time, it's either that whatever's the most active, right? So if the Hep C is active, um, I really will will treat the Hep C. Um, usually um, the Hep B viral load is suppressed at that time. I've seen cases where the Hepatitis B viral load is very high and the Hep C is very low. So then we would treat the Hep B first. Um, absolutely. And then sometimes the Hep C will go along or it'll just kind of go along at 300 copies and we'll monitor it um, and see how it goes. Ideally, yes, we'd like to treat both. Um, but also, similarly, with HIV infection, obviously we want to control hepatitis, HIV infection, document a suppressed viral load, make sure that person is taking their antiviral therapy, and then we'll do hep C after that. Exactly. The normal treatment, you can treat whichever one is. Right, you really want to treat, well, for, also for HIV, you want to control that first, because that's the driver to immunosuppression for sure. But for hep B versus hep C, yes, usually one or the other will be active, and you'll treat the one that is the most active first. And usually it's, it's very, very clear, and we're talking like 2 million versus 100 copies. So that would be, that would be what we would recommend. Um, not a lot of raging hep A, so that's good, <laughs> except unfortunately in the community we do have cases, but usually someone doesn't present with hep A because it's, it's usually time limited, but it's certainly a problem in the community um, for sure. Um, we're having an outbreak actually in Hillsborough County now. So um, any other thoughts, any words of wisdom, Amanda, for our, our fearless fellows and students treating hep C? Just in general? Yeah, or just anything to, to add? Um, yeah. I mean, we looked at our SVR 12 rates just this morning, and we're up to 98%. Nice. Um, we treated a 
about 2,000 veterans, so that's been great. Great. Um, the newer regimens are shorter, um, so we're seeing a lot more eight-week regimens, traditionally yeah. the 12 or 24 weeks. Um, you know, for the most part, they're very well tolerated. Yes. Um, yes, it is. Yeah, no, it's it's great. And always think of Hep C when you're screening folks in inpatient. Um, if they haven't been screened before, um, I always like to take a look. Um, if they have, you know, kind of odd inflammatory uh, pictures, or I, sometimes it's helpful to, to screen your folks, um, both for HIV and Hep C. Um, that's always helpful. I'm trying to think of any other pearls. Um, these are all available online, so um, you'll see them online, but also the references are there. And then your IDSA guidelines um, are also available by app. So when you pull them up on your browser on your phone, you can save that icon as, a, as an app, and you can go right through that too as well. And there's a hepatitis C learning course through the University of Wisconsin at the learning module. So there's actually HIV, hepatitis C, and STI learning modules, and you can get more information there in terms of um, education and, and a little bit more detail in terms of how to manage hep C. Yes, sir. Uh, so I know you mentioned um, after SBR, there's no need to screen for ATC if they're, they're, they're No need for screen for a, a more, I see, sure, sure, yep. What about, is there, is there any guidelines or recommendations as far as Yes. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So if they have autoimmune disease, um, if they already have alcoholic cirrhosis, uh, yes. So if anyone is really coming to you with cirrhosis pre, that absolutely counts as needing to be screened. Um, the guidelines technically every six months. We know that that's not really feasible sometimes, but at least you know, six months to a year would be very important. Correct. Um, the folks that we don't need to worry about are usually our young, healthy individuals who might have had intravenous drug use and now they're fine and they're doing fine. Um, as of yet, we don't we don't recommend screening um, with ultrasound. Certainly checkups and you know harm reduction and that kind of thing is very important. And I always, you know, I think LFTs every year makes a good sense, but um, correct, no, no clear guidelines. And actually, interestingly, the liver recovers so well, it's considered that they didn't have the disease, which is really phenomenal. Um, it is considered a total cure. Something interesting, the antibody for our, our students will always be positive. So I always, we actually have a checklist after someone's done with their therapy, um, not to be worried if their antibody is positive, doesn't mean they have active disease, right? So they'll always be positive. Um, so not to, not to worry about that if they're told that. Um, we also recommend, um, believe it or not, um, sharing of um, toothbrushes and razors. Um, within the military setting, a lot of our veterans um, um, in the field had to share implements, et cetera. Um, so we actually recommend, you know, when people visit our veterans who are cured to, you know, obviously not share personal items, but also um, to change out, don't share lancets, diabetic lancets, obviously. Um, common sense, too, I think, in uh, medical professionals, but just to make sure that we really um, educate our, our patients not to share those types of things um, is very important. But obviously sitting down and household contacts are fine. Um, and then the last thing I'll say is um, hepatitis C between monogamous partners, um, very low transmission rates. There was an Italian study where they looked at uh, discordant, serodiscordant couples for hepatitis C. I believe it was very low if no transmission rates um, between a monogamous couple. So I counsel my, my patients. Usually they're, they're fine if you know, you're counseling a married couple, et cetera. Um, we see hepatitis C transmission. Um, we do see sexual transmission, but it's usually um, in, in different kinds of um, relationships in terms of um, where there's a lot of blood and body fluids um, shared. So, but it is possible. We do see rates uh, with Hep B and Hep C.
but usually fine within monogamous couples. Okay, anything else we can help you with? Thank you so much for your attention. If you have any other questions, I'm available by email or phone. Thank you. <laughs>